Jaws of the Mat. This is Now Playing's Die Hard Retrospective Series. Welcome to the party, pal! Hosted by Arnie. It's always more of a Star Wars guy. Stuart. He didn't bring me along for my charming personality. And Jacob. Flying in the ointment, Hans. The monkey in the wrench. Pain in the ass. It's a good day to die hard. So each week, we will be watching and reviewing a new die hard film, ending with a weekend of release review of the new movie. Another basement, another elevator. Nothing the same shit happened to the same guy twice. This review will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Today, we're discussing The Detective. But I thought this was the Die Hard series. Yeah. Starring Frank Sinatra, Lee Remick, Jacqueline Bissett, Ralph Meeker, and Jack Klugman. Directed by Gordon Douglas. I'm Arnie, the hard-boiled co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. And this is Jacob. yippee Kaye, old blue eyes? I'm confused. <laughs> I think this all comes down to revenge because I made you all sit through Generation X as part of X-Men. That we are here talking about a Frank Sinatra film from 1968 as part of the Die Hard series. I know, very weird. And you're right. This may be the absolute worst tie-in that we've ever had. Not to say the worst movie, but nothing that this movie is going to deliver liver sets you up for what the rest of the series is going to be like at all. But there is a connection, and I guess I could walk everybody through that connection. Please do, because I'm the fan of Die Hard, and I don't know what the connection is. <laughs> John McClane is Joe Leland in print. There are two books about this detective. The first was adapted to the movie that we're watching today. Next week, its sequel, Nothing Lasts Forever, morphed into Die Hard. And they have the exact same character. He was not named John McClane in print. That was something they had to do when they realized Old Blue Eyes wasn't coming back. Yes, Sinatra was offered Die Hard, contractually required. He was their first go-to for that film, he said no. He was 75 years old. He didn't feel like running around buildings and avoiding explosions. But because he did this movie in 1968, he had the rights to the character and could say whether he would return or not as Joe Leland. Because he didn't return as Joe Leland, Bruce Willis does it as John McClane. But they are written by the same author, Roderick Thorpe. They do have the same central protagonist. And I have read both books. I'm covering them both over at Books and Nachos. Yeah, you say this is perhaps the most off-kilter lead-in for a series. I can certainly agree with that. Now, I obviously knew I was putting in a 60s Frank Sinatra film, but I had no idea what to expect other than this is the same guy who's in Die Hard. So can you imagine my abject confusion as I am watching this movie for the first hour <laughs> and trying to figure out when shit blows up? Yeah, I mean, I got excited when there was a helicopter shot. I was like, oh, look, Die Hard, there it goes, and it lands. It was, like, totally insignificant, but I got excited anytime anything that looked like Die Hard popped up on the screen because it's few and far between here. I think there's a shootout in a parking lot and a helicopter shot of landing, like, has nothing to do with anything, and that's about it. I don't think there's any visual cues other than that in this detective. Yeah, I totally misunderstood. When you said Die Hard was based on a book, I assumed the detective 
Detective is what you were talking about. I didn't know there was a sequel to it. So I'm sitting here. I'm like, okay, this is really different than Die Hard. Where's the skyscraper? Oh, there's a black cop. Is that supposed to be Al Pal? And then I realized that things are different here. This is a different book. Same character, but yeah. For our listeners, if you're going into this, just know this is a totally different story from Die Hard. Same protagonist, totally different story, though. I will admit that I did have to watch this movie twice for this review because the first time my expectations was speed is die hard on a bus and under siege is die hard on a boat. I came into this expecting die hard in the 60s. I had to watch it again. Yeah. It's not Die Hard in the 60s. It's not a traditional Sinatra movie either. By this point, Sinatra is 52 years old. He's made a lot of movies, and most of them are kind of lighthearted. We did the original Ocean's Eleven. There was Caper with his buddies. He did a lot of Rat Pack movies. He was in the middle of doing a detective series, Tony Rome, which is a very saucy, lighthearted Benny Hill almost take on a detective series. Sinatra, every now and then, flirts with a controversial movie. He did play a heroin junkie in Man with the Golden Arm. He did star in the original Manchurian Candidate. But by and large, I don't think of him as a serious actor. I don't think of him taking on the kinds of parts that this movie requires. The shock for me is not that this wasn't just Die Hard. It's that this is a pretty dark Sinatra movie here. Yeah, I'm not familiar. You know, I know he's a musician. I don't think I've ever seen any of his films. So going into this, yeah, very different than what I expected from a Sinatra film. And one of the things I noticed, I was watching the trailers that were on the DVD for this, and they're like, this is a hard-boiled detective story. This is unlike any cop film you've ever seen before. And the whole time I'm watching this, I'm thinking Dragnet, which came out around the same time, 1967 Dragnet. From that trailer, I got the idea that this was something very different from him, even though I was unfamiliar with his other theatrical work. I am not very familiar with his theatrical work. I know his songs, seen a couple of things here and there, but really, I've avoided the whole Rat Pack thing. It's before my time. I just don't have a whole lot of interest in it. I expected this to be lighthearted, and knowing Sinatra primarily as this multifaceted entertainer, I really wasn't even sure if I should expect him to be able to act. I wouldn't recommend it, actually. (laughs) Sinatra is a singer first and foremost. I don't think he ever would have made inroads into Hollywood if he was just relying on his acting talent, even with those mobster heavies that put the horse head in the bed. But hey, if Sinatra can't, I noticed the opening credits were full of names I knew from completely other things like Jack Klugman, recently deceased, The Odd Couple, 12 Angry Men. Yeah. Robert Duvall. Always a good sign. I love Robert Duvall, even in bad movies. And Lee Remick. And don't forget Tom Atkins, a long time now playing Persona. I mean, all the way back to Halloween 3. Boop, 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 boop. Seven more days till real die hard, real die hard, real die hard. Seven more days till real die hard. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. I think they get the point. Arnie, why don't you give him the plot? Police detective Joe Leland is a good cop, but his honesty makes him politically dangerous. His marriage is on the rocks due to his wife Karen's addiction to sex with strangers, but a promotion dangled in front of him causes Joe to fast-track the investigation into the murder of Terry Leichman, son of one of New York's most prominent businessmen, who is a closeted gay socialite. Leichman's body was found with his fingers and penis cut off. The likely perp is Felix Tesla, a disturbed bodybuilder and the dead man's lover and roommate who suffered emotional abuse from Leichman. Tesla confesses and is given the electric chair, fitting for a man named Tesla, and Joe is promoted to lieutenant. But after his promotion, Joe is approached by Norma McIver, a woman whose husband supposedly committed suicide by jumping from the roof of a racetrack midday in the middle of the race. 
The case has been closed, but MacGyver asks Joe to investigate, and his investigation turns up that Colin MacGyver was involved in Project Rainbow, a scheme to keep the elite rich richer by charging more for low-value land sold to the city for public housing. Joe wants to bring those involved in Rainbow down, but in doing so, he'd implicate sleazy shrink Dr. Roberts, the shrink to Joe's wife. Roberts was implicated in Rainbow, but it was a farce. He was wrongly implicated by Colin in the documentation, and to make up for it, Colin had Roberts Roberts tape a confession. Colin was a self-loathing bisexual who had a secret homosexual encounter gone awry, and it was Colin, not Felix, who killed Lykeman. Joe goes forward with the information anyway, resigning from the force to protect the department from the heat he will feel for angering the rich and for having Felix put to death for a murder he didn't commit. And that is the basic story. It's kind of an oddly paced one that's told with a lot of flashbacks and a very non-linear storytelling device, but we start off, we're jumped right in the middle of it as we see Joe coming in and looking at the body of Lykman there on the ground and investigating in, and I figure my first time watching, this whole thing is going to be a single story, an investigation in this murder of Lykman that would lead to something bigger. Yeah, this movie's called The Detective, so I'm figuring, okay, this is going to be about Frank Sinatra, Joe Leland, picking up the clues, putting things together, real good detective story. And that's my expectations at the beginning of this film, at least. Well, I read the book. I knew the elements that it was basically going to have. It should be pointed out, this is a 600-page novel. It is huge. It is dense. It starts with the later death. It starts with the racetrack death. And Joe Leland has left the police force. He is now a private detective. They have chosen to streamline a lot of things about the book. I think they go mostly chronologically with flashbacks to his time when he first joins the force and meets his future wife. But for the most part, they decided to take it from the beginning of the story and go chronologically. I think it actually helps. I think it's a good adaptation of the story because reading the novel, 600 pages, oh boy, I didn't know how they were going to tackle it when they went in here, but I felt like it was the right choice when I saw him walking in to the Lykman case. The Lykman case is one of many that Joe investigates. They cut most of them. This is the central one. This is the important one. This is the one that found his career on a lie. He is going to pursue this case and pin the blame on someone that deep down he knows isn't really guilty. And I was pretty shocked when they get to this Lykman case right here at the beginning. First of all, it's pretty gruesome. It doesn't show anything, but they talk about how his penis was cut off. His fingers were cut off. They're talking about semen stains on the sheets and him being a homosexual. And this seems like it was pretty edgy stuff for 1968. I think it's pretty edgy now. They were exploring the fact that there was now an MPAA. It should be pointed out, this is one of the first movies to get an R. Before this year, it was not really instated. You know, the rating system had existed for a couple years, but studios were not applying it to their films. This was the studio's attempt to make a little bit more edgy film, go for a different audience and see what they could get away with. And I feel like the filmmakers really go for it in this movie. You can say a lot about it feeling stilted and old fashioned, but the content that they're dealing with is pretty raw. I was shocked that immediately jumping into this, I had to rewind. They said the penis is cut off. I'm like, they said the pinky, right? They're cut off fingers. Because <laughs> they wouldn't be talking about a penis in a Frank Sinatra film from the 60s. And then semen stains, I'm thinking, wow, they are going CSI on me 40 years ahead of time. I was very shocked by the content. And it's pervasive. It's not 
a one-note thing here at the beginning. This movie, in both its stories, because you said there's many cases in the book, this one focuses on the two, but both of them having this context and this commentary on homosexuality, that seems very forward for this time. And to be done in a way where the protagonist of the film is actually sympathetic and not bigoted against them and not in a birth of the nation mammy kind of way. You know, I'd stop short of calling it progressive, but it is essential that they portray Sinatra as being a better man than everyone on the force. As he arrives here, there's a new recruit, the black guy, Robbie. He's like, I hear you're the best detective in town. And indeed, he is going to be the only worthwhile cop we see here. You have to remember 1968, cops were not popular. The youth culture was at arms with police and they wouldn't go see a movie about cops. I feel like this was a tough sell. So they had to create an environment in which Sinatra distinguishes himself from all the other bigoted, hateful cops. And yeah, they do that here. That as he goes and explores the gay underworld, he's going to have a lot more sympathy than anybody else on the force. In portraying all these other cops as bigoted, I mean, they refer to homosexuals as fags and queers. But there's one scene where Tom Atkins is talking about having shot somebody in a car, but he shot somebody who was African-American, not gay, right? I didn't get a visual on who it was supposed to be. It was just the fact that he used his gun probably a little too quick on the draw and that the newspapers were helping him cover up. I didn't get a sense of who had received that bullet, only that it was an abuse of power and that that was being buried. And it was something that Sinatra could sniff out but do nothing about at that time. Okay, because it seemed like most of the more liberal social commentary seemed aimed about homosexuality. And so when he talks about the civil rights movement going after this cop, I'm like, so do they just hate all non-waspy whites? I mean, I'm trying to figure out if it's just a overall atmosphere of bigotry. Well, I think it was like Stuart said, it was the spirit of the time to be anti-authoritarian, the hippie movement. The cops, they're just the bad guys here. I don't think they need race or class or sexual orientation. It's just a cop abused his power and they're trying to cover it up. Yeah, I definitely feel like that was the perception in 1968. However true, I'm not going to argue. I wasn't alive at the time. But yeah, cops were bad guys. And I don't think youth markets, which movies were marketed to, youths of the day did not want to go out and watch movies about a bunch of cops. They were the people that broke up the rallies, that Billy clubbed your friend, that were mean to women gays, blacks, it would not have been fashionable to just make a movie about a police force. You had to make Sinatra be more sympathetic, be more special, to be more in touch with what was going on and not so quick to pull the trigger. And yet, I'd still characterize Sinatra as a pretty conservative figure here, that, you know, he's kind of square. At the end of the day, he didn't come from hippie roots. He's always been a cop. He's from a family of cops. He, I think, is supposed to represent a compassionate conservative And the woman that he hooks up with, she's more of the flighty liberal, you know, she'll end up sleeping around, she hosts LSD parties. I think that they represent the two sides of the decade, Karen and Joe. 
And the Karen storyline really confused me because we see him go to her after this murder when he's put off a politician who wanted to get some publicity. He goes to her for comfort and she is having a party. I don't think they were doing LSD, were they? They were just talking about LSD. No, Timothy Leary was going to show up and give a lecture on LSD. (laughs) There might have been some pass around. I didn't notice. They're very coy about what they show here. I mean, yes, there is a murder with a penis removed, but they got a carefully placed potted plant that makes it hard to see. I feel like they do that a lot in this movie. There's a lot of mention about things that are happening now without a lot of showing it. We see junkies, but we don't see them shoot up. We talk about violence and shooting, but we don't actually see this happen. I think that even though this is an R, and I do feel like it would be a hard R for 1968, they're very standoffish about some of the more violent or showing drug use or showing blood. I think they would have wanted to pull back from that and do. But the way that they then tell in flashback of his romance with Karen really kind of caught me off guard because it starts with this very of the time wavy lines of the (laughs) music. Wayne and Garth. (laughs) I laughed every time they did it, and they did it a lot. What tripped me out was I actually wrote down, is this a fantasy scene or a flashback? Because they had just talked about staying for this speech about the benefits of LSD, and then you get this... And then it's supposed to be Joe in his younger days, which I guess you could tell because he has a uniform on instead of just his detective clothes, but it's still the same old Frank Sinatra. So I'm like, what's going on here? Yeah, they do nothing to de-age Sinatra. It's actually infuriating to me because there are a lot of flashbacks and it's hard to keep track of where you are in the timeline because Sinatra looks the same. He's the same old smoke too much, drink too much, 52-year-old self, no matter what scene they're shooting him in. It's impossible to tell unless you pay attention to the wavy lines where we are on the chronology. But in the book, they met as college kids. Here, they kind of rewrite it as, oh, I'm going back to school for some cop classes. But clearly, he could never play a teenager at this point in his life. But yeah. The wavy lines told me flashback pretty easily. Although the flashback went on for so long, I started to wonder if it was still a flashback. Well, that's what I'm talking about. It's hard to remember where we are in the time frame because of that. I thought maybe the whole film was going to be flashback and then the very end would come back to solving this case. I did wonder that myself. But then in this flashback, there are these jump cuts because we see him meet Karen at a dance and then you cut and he's outside on the street eating a hot dog and he's obviously waiting for I figure they're outside of the dance no they're outside of a play and then they're in the police office time is passing very quickly in these jump cuts and yeah there's no visual cues no editing cues nothing auditory it really required an active brain to keep up with what was going on and listening to the dialogue it felt staged very much like a play They were trying to rush us through the courtship here. It's not really important how they meet. It's just more important that you understand that they come from different sides of things. She's a college kid. She's studying sociology. Like I said, she's going to take more of the side of liberalism. She's going to be the one that frowns on the fact that the newspapers are covering up the Tom Atkins shot. She's the one that goes down on Sinatra. Wow, when they do that, I couldn't believe it. She gets on top of Sinatra and goes down on him. I'm right there with you, Stuart. I'm like, are they going to cut away? Because she going down. It's something else. She's promiscuous. We will come to understand that she has this burning urge to screw people that she cannot control, and it ends up wrecking their marriage. This flashback is to a time when they met and fell in love and married. In the present, when the real case is happening, she's an ex-wife that, you know, every now and then Sinatra balls. Literally, 
literally, I mean, that's the word that I get. I couldn't believe yeah. that. Balling's what you do best. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly thought he meant crying. Yeah, no. I, no. <laughs> yeah, it took me a while to remember that ball was a term for sex back then for old people. And they weren't old at the time, but yes, it is an outdated term. And one that, like so much of the language here, it really is pretty saucy. Whatever you think about a movie called The Detective in 1968, get Bogart out of your head. Get the whole idea of like film noir, old-fashioned out of your head. This is a racy now 60s picture, much like Bonnie and Clyde or Midnight Cowboy or anything that would have been called hippie cinema at the time. They're going for that here. And what I really got on my second watching, since the first time i'm just trying to keep up is how much is foreshadowed of her problems because when you see them at that party with the lsd speech you know that there's something going on you see this and it looks like yeah this is how they get happily married but she is withholding things here there are key moments here and i really enjoy the way that lee remick is playing them in that it's telling us there's a lot more here and she's really trying to put her past behind her and being with joe makes her want to be a better person i think she gives a very moving performance whereas frank not only does he always look like 50 year old sinatra he always acts the same he's very stoic you don't get a whole lot out of him so it's how people play off of him that i really am enjoying in this film yeah you get this one scene during their courtship during the flashback where they go up i think it's his place maybe her place and he's like, how many men have you had up here? And she's like, thousands. And she probably isn't lying at that point once we find out what's going on with her. And he kind of like says the same thing. And I'm like, so is he a player? Is he joking? Like, because he doesn't emote at all. He's the same character throughout the film or I guess the way he plays it, the acting, it's just so straight the whole time. You never know how to take it. You do have to pay attention to how the other characters are reacting. I would say he has no talent for this at all. This movie suffers greatly because they have such a blank in the lead role. This movie would be so much better if we had a better actor or a better even movie star. It doesn't require a great feat of acting, but just someone that is more convincing. I just feel like when action moments do happen, and they barely do, but when chase scenes happen, they have the black guy go run and do it. Or, or they speed up the camera so that Sinatra looks like he can putter a little bit faster than he wants to. I just feel like Sinatra is not giving very much to this part. And it makes me so glad that he didn't wind up playing Dirty Harry, which this is sort of a warm-up to, but they did want him to continue. That was the plan, was this movie almost got him Dirty Harry. And I kind of like this depiction of a cop. Again, a detective story in the 60s, you say get Bogart out of my head. That was what was in my head when this film started. And don't get me wrong, I love the Maltese Falcon. But I didn't know how I'd feel about something that was derivative of that 20 years later. This was a far more modern and hard look at a police detective than I was expecting going in. And far more cynical as he deals with all the corruption in the department. We already talked about how there were police cover-ups and the politicians and how he's being forced to deal with this kind of political aspect. And so, yeah, he is given 48 hours to figure out who killed Lykman, and it would be his third murder solved in a week. And sure enough, he's going to figure it out. What I couldn't tell was whether or not he really believed Tesla was the killer. The way they find out about Tesla, <laughs> like... 
Okay, this again, I went into this. This is called The Detective. He's going to be finding all these little hints. Stuart, you said you wouldn't quite call this progressive. And I, I think this is the part where we can say it's not quite as progressive with its view of homosexuality. Like, here's the clues. Lykman had some mineral water. And those gays like to oil up their bodies at the gym. So let's go check out all the YMCAs. They called out the Y as a gay cruising joint 10 years before the village people. I am so impressed with this movie. Damn, it is going there. But yeah, it's not a progressive view because to make the jump that okay he had mineral oil in his closet that must mean that he's into bodybuilding and that must mean that we'll find the killer at the Y they don't even find him at the Y I'm not even sure how they get to the hotel where they actually nab him because they found sand oh so he must be at a beach check out all the hotels <laughs> <at> the beach <laughs> But I got to say, the most shocking piece of detective work is when they go down to the waterfront, to the docks. I guffawed at this point where they open the semi and it's like just gaggle of gay <laughs> men like making out. And there's like three semis of just gay orgies going on. I couldn't do anything but laugh because it was just such a disconnect for me. I didn't know how to respond to this scene. It's a shocker. Yes, they really wanted to portray something raw here. Rawer than has ever been permitted before. They were taking advantage of that R. This is an R-rated movie. If they had made it a year before, they probably wouldn't have this gay cruising joint scene at all. It doesn't really serve the plot much, but they slap around a couple of kids, but really they don't get any information. They don't really get anything until they have Felix in custody and we have the most bizarre interrogation seduction I have ever seen. Ever. Okay, so that was seductive, because when Sinatra puts his hand on the other guy's forearm, you know, with a movie with such overt homosexual plot lines, I'm like, so is Sinatra coming on to him to coerce a confession? That's the way I took it. He felt that this guy wouldn't respond to being slapped around, that the other guys were, you know, giving him the bad cop routine. Sinatra was, yeah, not just putting his hand on his forearm. I mean, like, fingers going over the palm, like, putting his arm around him at some point, really trying to sell him on the fact that, hey, you can tell me, buddy. I mean, it's an awkward scene, for sure. Made even more so by the performance being given by Felix. Yeah, that is a really, really strange performance there. I don't know this actor from anything else. I guess he's worked the whole time. IMDb told me he went on to be a soap star. But this performance is so out there and so weirdly inflected. But I'm going to give him credit because the first time I watched this movie, he's doing this parrot thing where Joe is saying something like, you liked his body because it was girlish. I liked his body because it was girlish. And I, when he finally confesses, I'm like, is this a real confession or is this him continuing to parrot? It really did suck me in where I was questioning the veracity of what it was showing me. I liked the way it was told, but man, it was odd. Yeah, I started to get hints of, are they trying to do something about mental illness here? Now, I think that's going to come up later on, too. But they even asked Joe, you know, is it going to stick? And he's like, yeah, it should stick. Like, this is a turning point for me where, no, it's not about solving Lykman's murder. There's something more going on here. They're trying to get to something deeper. You know, now Joe's going to the dark side. He's covering something up to get where he wants to go after coming out and make up for those cops who committed murder at that police stop. And this is where in my first watching, I got really confused because I thought this entire thing would be an investigation into Lykman's murder. And so at the 50 minute mark where we have a confession and Joe's like being lauded with it, I'm like, wow, what is the rest of this movie about? Right. Here's the way I take it. 
he thinks that Felix did it. He's confident of that. He's getting the confession that he believes to be correct. What he doesn't agree with is that this guy should get the chair. He believes that this guy's insane. And indeed, this guy is acting really insane. And it's part of the non-progressive side of this movie. And it was even more pronounced in the book. Is that you have to remember, at this point in time, homosexuality was linked as mental illness in psychological circles. His take on it was, all gay people are crazy, but we shouldn't put this guy under the chair. He should be put into a padded room where he can do no harm. I think that is what Sinatra is wrestling with. And so when he has to sit there and watch this guy get the chair, it's not that he thinks that the wrong guy is being persecuted is that he got the wrong punishment for the crime. And that execution was a little hard for me to watch. I think I've become a little bit more sensitive to certain aspects of death as I grow older. And seeing him executed like that, knowing he was insane, questioning the validity of his confession, and just seeing him die like that with the blindfold leather strap. And I feel that because this is older, the death was probably portrayed a bit more realistically, whereas right now they'd probably sensationalize it with more crisp sound effects and things like that. I'm not going to call this scene realistic or anything that we're seeing. I mean, I feel like this movie has one foot in camp the whole time. A lot of this stuff feels way over the top, but the other half of it feels really gritty and raw and true to life, so it's a push and pull, but I thought this death scene was kind of mockable, really. And you've asked, where was the rest of the movie leading? It's leading to what most of the book is about. Again, I want to say that all of this Lightman stuff was the past. This was when Joe was a part of the police force. In the novel, he has since left it. He went to work for an insurance company and investigate insurance claims, and he has just struck out on his own with his wife, not ex-wife, his wife, to start a private detective institution. And they have lots of cases going on, only one of which is what the second half of this movie is about, the mysterious death of Colin McIver at the horse track race. And the second story is even less clear to me than the first. The first one was really quick, a lot of rousting of gay nests and then flashbacks to his romance with his wife. But the second one, I wasn't even so sure that there was a case. Or was it more romance? Because this woman, Norma, comes to him and wants her husband's death investigated, but she's a pretty girl. Joe's semi-single. He's estranged, if not completely divorced, and I wasn't sure is this really going to be a story about an investigation into a case, or is this going to be more melodrama about Joe, Karen, and now Norma? I do feel like this movie works in all the ways that it does work better as a commentary on the times. And yes, the state of marriage, the state of how people saw minorities or gays or women or promiscuity. I do feel like it is more a time capsule, if you will. It's interesting to dig it up and see what we thought of ourselves back in 1968. I don't think that the detective stuff here is very good in the book or in this movie. It's a little bit better in the book, but also goes on for way too much. I think that they've done the right thing by cutting this down to the most essential moments and what we're left with is a very bizarre look at Joe and what his promotion from watching Felix Fry has led to two years later. I mean, it is a downfall. I would say that this is somewhat of a tragic figure here, that his life has not gotten better by being promoted on a lie, or at least on the death of Felix. Yeah, this film for me, what works is that 
like you said, Stuart, the time capsule, the view of society at the time. The detective work, like I said, a bottle of mineral oil solves the case. It, crap. The detective yeah. work Total is crap. not yeah. great. But this whole view, like you find out Joe's wife, Karen, she's promiscuous and she's been seeing a psychiatrist. Is she mentally ill? Is it mentally ill people that like to have sex? Or you get all these cops bringing in all these poor black people and Joe's kind of like, they're agitators. And why are you trying to bring them in? They just want a place to live. Like you said, that time capsule element and seeing how the police are dealing with society and where Joe's actions take the police force. He says he convicted Felix. He got Felix to admit to the murder to help make up for the shooting. Now we see cops want to get that promotion like Joe. And so they're using Nazi uh, interrogation <laughs> tactic on people. Yeah, this was a big part of the book. This whole thing of the, the Shaftel case is what it's called. And what we find out, it's this little girl, six-year-old, had been abducted and Joe, his father, is still on the police force. He's coming in and out and giving advice. He knows that she's going to end up dead. And indeed, she does end up being the victim of the this elderly man. Here they really shoehorned it to one scene of a black guy tying a 68-year-old man naked to a chair and saying, hey, it's okay. I learned this by watching Holocaust videos. I mean, this should have just been caught. This was really confusing. <laughs> I think, though, whenever you guys talk about scenes that don't make a lot of sense, like this scene with the naked guy or the earlier scene with the gays in the semi-trucks, I think it's all there to just keep driving home this atmosphere of bigotry and the police thinking that they're above it all. This entire story, what we come to find out is that the reason that the guy killed himself is because he was involved in a scheme that helps keep the slum poor and makes the rich richer and it's all about this kind of caste system that the cops are in the middle of because you see cops are on the take people are paying them off to keep quiet so they have some of the privilege of the rich while still not being rich and I think that the scene you say it should be cut well I could see certainly things in the scene that don't make a whole lot of sense but I think it's there to just show that everywhere Joe looks is shit it is shitty people doing shitty things and Joe trying as much as he can to stay above it while his boss is saying, you've got to get down in it. I'm about to retire and guess who's going to be the next politician? It's you, Joe. Not only does it show it's bad, it shows that things are getting worse. You have to remember Robbie was new. His first day on the job was that Lykeman case. And in the two years since, he's now resorted to torture to getting his promotion. He thinks that this is the way to get ahead. I agree. All of this is sending that signal loudly and often. I, my question for you guys is, do you perceive Joe as the one good cop or is he arrogant? Is he arrogant or is he noble or is he both? I think he's a conflicted character. At one point, he meets this girl. She's a pusher. She's an addict. She's a whore. She's only 19. Like, he looks down on a lot of these people, but I get the feeling he doesn't blame them altogether for their actions. There are talks about people need to take responsibility, but I think he also sees that it's not just the individuals that are sick. It's society. And throughout this film, I think he realizes that he gets that sickness, too, that you could try to be above it all. But if that's what you're around all the time, it's eventually going to get you and bring you down. 
See, and my take on it is slightly different. I think that he's supposed to be the good cop. I mean, he's played by Sinatra. He's the hero of the story. I think he's supposed to be the one who we're cheering for, especially if you put it in the context you did, Stuart, of cops aren't the good guys in the stories. He's supposed to be the good guy amidst all of the stereotypical cops or the negative stereotype of cops from that era. That said, he certainly comes off very self-righteous and self-doubting in certain ways. I mean, he isn't completely good because in the midst of it all, he goes back to screw his estranged wife just to give in to some base desires. And he plows forward. I think we're supposed to take him as our hero. We're supposed to take him as the noble one. We're supposed to agree with his points of view, though. I think they get into trouble. I think that on one hand, they want to show him as compassionate, and yet the story is set up to be that of hubris. The fact that he thought that he could get ahead and he will essentially have to walk away from the force. There is no such thing as a good detective is the message I take from it in the fact that he has to turn in his badge and rat out the bad guys. He does though at the expense of his own future. I think that it might have been better and I think they did tweak the formula and make it better if they had just made him a universal bigot like Dirty Harry. I mean, in a few years and again I want to say Sinatra was first choice for Dirty Harry. The whole idea of Dirty Harry is he hates everybody. Everybody's bad but he's still got a moral code and he's still going to do what's right and yeah he's still the hero here i just think it's weird because they play him wishy-washy one minute he's hugging the gay killer that he thinks is responsible for this heinous crime and the next minute he's kind of lecturing other cops almost in the way that spencer tracy does and guess who's coming to dinner about they don't know what's coming if they don't behave better to a society that's tearing apart at the seams i just feel like the character is whatever they need to be in the moment and not very consistent. But the second case that he's solving is really muddled because it's a suicide that leads to a land deal that leads to the murder that started this whole movie. It is very convoluted and because it's not the focal point of the story, I feel it's poorly told. It is, and it's the compromise being that if this were following the way the book did it, he's a private detective. He's being hired to investigate something that the cops are covering up. Because they've written him as someone that is moving up the police ranks, he's still a cop. They're having him investigate a case that's wrapped up. That doesn't make any sense at all. It essentially looks like, hey, I'm doing this because you're a cutie. And they do a lot to make this Jacqueline Bissett character attractive. One of the things they changed from the book is that she was pregnant by the dead guy. This one, they do away with that because they really want to imply that there might be a future between this guy and her. But I don't think that we have a lot invested in why the guy fell off the roof. They don't make it look like it was a murder. Did you guys ever get the sense that he might have been pushed? When it showed that scene, I wrote down, guy commits suicide. I mean, that's how I took it. I had no thought that there was someone that pushed him or even maybe blackmailed him into it. Yeah, the book leaves it much more open-ended and so he spends a lot of time talking with people and we really do think for a large portion of it that in fact it was foul play. It's a surprise twist that we find out that it indeed was suicide. And I don't necessarily get that out of this movie. Even after the second watching, I'm left going, you know, they never really answer the questions that are asked like, why would he do it in a racetrack in the middle of the day? Why is it nobody saw it? These are the questions that prompt Joe to investigate. In the end, he finds reason that this guy would be guilty enough to commit suicide, but it's still never really determined if it was suicide or murder in my mind. 
and it's not clear to me why exactly he did it. I mean, he didn't leave a note, so if it was really suicide, you think he would. Maybe his tape confession is the note. I just don't know whether he killed himself because he's so guilt-stricken over killing Leichman. I don't get that sense when you listen to the tape. Or it's because he's in up to his neck with all this guilty money that he's laundering. He's the CPA for all these corrupt city officials that are paying money to each other to not do anything for the poor. I'll take option three, which you didn't list, where he just hates himself for being bisexual. He states on the tape that he feels more guilt over his homosexual desires than he does over being a murderer and the cause of death for two people. Yeah, then why the racetrack? Why then? Why? There's so much why. Why did he cut off the penis? And what did he do with it? I mean, they do explain some of these things in the book, but I have no idea in this movie. That was my biggest question is, okay, we see him hit Leichman over the head with a, I don't know, stone ashtray, whatever that was. He knocks him out and then he cuts off fingers and cuts off penises. Like, again, the detective, there's not a whole lot of hints or whys or logic or reasoning here. That's not what this film apparently is about. It's a terrible, terrible detective story. We understand almost nothing, including motive and how they solve the case. It's pretty lazy to have the whole resolution be, hey, I found this cassette in this shrink's office and I'm going to play it and it will explain everything to me. I mean, that is bad writing. Yeah, the shrink is shown to be sleazy because he's like, oh, your ex-wife is my patient. You didn't know that? And a better man could have just dealt with her whorishness. Yeah, by the way, shrinks should never be talking about their cases to anyone. You know, they take codes. There's ethics involved here. So I guess they were just setting him up to be the bad guy because every scene we see him in, we think that he is somewhat the responsible one for maybe he even did the murder if you think there was a murder. But we're meant to believe that he's a nefarious character. He's certainly an unethical psychiatrist. Yeah, it's the 60s. Maybe there weren't confidentiality rules back then, but... (laughs) That said, he's more than happy to whip out this cassette and play it, which proves he is not at all evil. He's just a jerk. And admittedly, in the 60s, psychiatrists were really looked upon as witch doctors and bad guys anyway. Yeah. But he plays this tape. Why does he play this tape? He says, you don't want to hear this tape, and it's barely about Rainbow. And yet he plays it, and... It just so happens to be the same murderer for the same case that he's been plagued with guilt about. I mean, it's a lot of convenience here. It's bad writing. I don't know what else to say. I feel like this movie is a really crappy detective story. Yeah, I wish there'd been a little bit more nuance to it. I wish there'd been a little bit more why there. Let me ask you this, and maybe this is me seeing it from the eyes of someone in 2013, a bit more progressive than this film is. But there's a line that Joe says, a man committed a murder because he didn't want it to be known he was a homosexual. Is he saying that this man should have just been at terms? If he's gay, he's gay, and he should have been all right with that. Like, that's how I took it, but I know I'm watching this movie from a very different viewpoint than how it was written. You could extrapolate that. I mean, I don't feel like he's, quote-unquote, condoning the homosexual lifestyle. He merely feels like police shouldn't bully the gay community. And maybe that's what he's getting at. I feel like if they're doing it, they're only tentatively doing that. I feel like in 1968, that would have been too much for any movie. 
And yeah, so Joe is left with the decision to keep the cover up and become as corrupt as those around him or choose the option he takes. He goes public with it, wanting to bring down the corrupt rich people and in doing so has to resign from the force, which leads me to ask you guys, what do you think this movie's about when the credits are rolling? I feel like it's pretty nihilistic. I feel like it really wants to attack everybody. It wants to be so current and look at the social ills of the day. It has very little to offer as far as solutions or even heroes here you know it looks at the women's movement and says oh those are a bunch of winches that sleep around and wreck traditional marriage it looks at gays and say they're a bunch of crazy people that like to cut off each other's dicks the black guy ends up being a nazi when he gets promoted it really is pretty dark but not particularly savvy. It's ironic to me that Sinatra in an early scene walks out on a play because he likes to see the bright side of life and doesn't like cynicism. I feel like this movie is incredibly cynical. You know, I see it as here's this society crumbling that Joe references that over and over. Society's fallen apart. But at the end of the day, everyone seems all right who's supposedly fallen apart. Like the homosexuals are having a good time in the back of the semis. His ex-wife's having a good time balling everyone. And it's him who has to give up his like conservative outlook on life. He has to give up the symbol of authority. He has to give up his police badge to be at peace with himself. So I get what you're saying, Stuart, but I think there is this hint of having to reject that conservatism, reject that old way of thinking if you're going to go on and do something good in life. You think Frankie's going to grow his hair long and become a deadhead? I, I don't think he's going to go that far, <laughs> but I, I think he sees the cracks in this foundation that he built, the system of belief that he built for himself that, you know, Law and order are the police force. That's what's going to protect society. He begins to even see the flaws in that and that he doesn't change a whole lot. He's not going to go sit in on that LSD lecture at the end of this film. <laughs> That's but what I, I think... mean. It just ends with him driving. We don't know where he's going to. It's really easy to have someone walk away from a corrupt system. But what's he going to do? I mean, maybe it should have ended with him opening that private detective agency. I just feel like this movie should have ended on a more solid note than it does. It really leaves us hanging. I agree with you there, Stuart. I was left wondering what was the point of his actions and what was he going to do? He goes on these diatribes throughout about why he's a cop and how it's the only thing he can do. When he turns in his badge, I am left wondering what's left for this character and how is he going to end up in Nakatomi Plaza? (laughs) (laughs) I'll answer that next week. I've read that book, too. But I do think that this is actually a fairly conservative statement about, you know, like you say, being a progressive conservative where we are supposed to see this corrupt society and think that we need to take a stand. He is supposed to inspire the audience to take that I am Spartacus moment and stand up against the corruption and be the good person, even if faced with a sea of shit. And there's a line that Joe says in the movie when he's fighting with Karen, each person knows what's important to him and should compromise for nobody, which means that fidelity in marriage is important to him. Even if he loves her, he needs her to be faithful, and she can't do that. And even if the police around him are corrupt, he knows what's important to him. I think that while you see this as nihilistic, Stuart, I see this as supposed to be inspirational in a way that this man went down, but he went down a hero for doing the right thing and to inspire others to not give in to a corrupt system. Yeah, I just feel like it's only so inspirational until you realize he's got nowhere to go. He's got no job. I mean, he's driving to nowhere. Not even the new chick. You know, they give some indication that he might wind up with Jacqueline Bissett's character. He walks out on her, too. I mean, truly, he leaves us in limbo. 
Well, I guess that leaves Jacob Stewart. Do you recommend the detective Jacob? You know, since I've been doing now playing, we all start hearing movies that are influential to us. And, you know, Stuart, you're always talking about these 70s films like French Connection. So I've, I've gone back and started watching a lot of those films just, you know, so I could understand your point of view more and, you know, different aspects of cinema. And it's interesting when I watch French Connection, when I watched uh, Stephen Queen's Bullet, they're known for these cop dramas, you know, Bullet, oh, this big hundred mile an hour chase. But what really took me back when I watched films like that is that they're more about these characters that pop Popeye Doyle, he has this obsession with catching this guy. Bullet, he's starting to lose his humanity because all he sees are murder scenes and, and that. And it's not really about the detective work or the police work. And thank God this film isn't about the detective work because the detective work here is awful. And for me, this is more of a story about society and this character. And that's its strengths. It's got weaknesses. The story structure with those flashbacks, it makes it confusing. I didn't watch this a full two times, Arnie, but I did have to rewatch and watch scenes over again to follow along, especially early on in the film. This isn't a perfect story, but I was engaged watching it as, you said, Stuart, a time capsule of the 60s moving into the 70s and watching this ideal of authority fall away and, and society begin to change. It's not this perfect film of progressiveness, and we've talked about this conflict between, you know, these conservative views. Does Joe Leland, does he have a story arc here? Does he change, or is he holding on? Is he curmudgeon? But I was engaged with this film as the view on society, watching this conservative guy trying to deal with a society that's changing around him. And that's what held my interest and what fascinated me as I watched this film. And so it's not a great cop film. It's not a great diehard film. If you're going in for detective stories or diehard, skip it. But yeah, I could give this one a recommend. It engaged me. It kept me interested. I enjoyed watching it. Stuart. Yeah, first of all, this is a terrible Die Hard film. I feel like it's so terrible that we had to talk about this movie in the context of Bruce Willis running around fighting terrorists. This movie has got none of that. It should not be thought of in those terms. It's almost the antithesis to that kind of film. It is a police procedural about the troubles of the day. And so I do try to look at it that. And unfortunately, it unfavorably compares to those films you mentioned, Jacob. Yeah, Popeye Doyle is a lot more complex complicated character in the French connection dealing with what's wrong and right. Dirty Harry, much more interesting character as he fights all of these same things. I mean, if you want to see a police procedural set in a gay underworld, I'd even go with William Friedkin's Cruising, which is, he made it after Exorcist and French Connection. It's really dark and crazy. Al Pacino goes into the New York gay scene and finds a serial killer. I feel like that one's got more drama and is just more gripping than this movie. This movie's got one foot in camp and one foot in seriousness and I just can't rectify that as good intentioned as it is, I just don't think it's aged well. It feels like a Dragnet episode trying to deal with topics that it can only half deal in. And I don't think it's well written. I don't think the book was well written. I think that the screenplay is a good adaptation of a very bad book and I just, no, I can't recommend it. But I think it's interesting. I mean, I don't think it's worthless. I think if you have a curiosity about the time and the way that people perceive what was going on in youth culture, gay culture, black culture, divorce, all of those things. A time capsule, yes. A movie, no. Not recommend. And I'm going to give this a recommend. I agree with some of your complaints, Stuart, so it's not like the strongest recommend of now playing history or even for this diehard retrospective that this is unfortunately shoehorned into. But 
while this movie is so uneven from, like you say, going from caricature to trying to be a serious issues film, and it's uneven in its storytelling flow, the way it uses flashback and the way characters are talking right at you into the camera. There's a lot of things about this movie that kept me off kilter, but I was deeply invested in that ride, and that's why I went back to watch it again. When I watched it the second time, I already knew I was going to recommend it, because I was engrossed in the first time going, where the hell is this going? But on the second viewing, things really coalesced, and while certain parts of it are very conveniently written, there are other parts of dialogue that I do think are well written. It's not a well-written story, but they're well-written lines, and really engaging performances. It's not the type of film I would expect when we go back to the 60s, and it's that bias I have against old films that make me not watch a lot of films from the 60s and befores, because I expect things to not be so forward with issues. I expect things to not be so nuanced. But I do think this film is one that helped usher in the more nihilistic films of the 70s. I do think this is a great time capsule, but more I think it is a really experimental piece of storytelling that engaged me. So I'm definitely giving it a recommend, but it is not without its flaws. And I would not invest 600 pages into a book <laughs> based on it. Maybe that's all it is. I really do resent having to spend so much on the book. And again, if you want to hear my thoughts on that over at Books and Nachos, that episode's already published. And then we'll be getting to the sequel book, Nothing Lasts Forever. And now that is Die Hard. That is almost scene by scene Die Hard. It is the direct sequel to this movie. It makes a little bit more sense when you follow the literary character. I'll be talking about that over at Books and Nachos as well. And you can find that at booksandnachos.com and then head to Now Playing podcast.com where each week we'll be reviewing another diehard film going up to the new film coming out in february you can also find our older retrospective you can go back and hear our reviews of every james bond film all of the marvel comic movies the silent night deadly night series if the christmas spirit is still lingering in you the entire texas chainsaw massacre series we released the review of the newest one last week you can find that all in the archive section at nowplayingpodcast.com and if you enjoy those shows, head to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. That link is also at NowPlayingPodcast.com. So, Stuart Jacob, thank you for journeying to the 60s with me for The Detective. But next week, yippee Kaye, motherfucker, we're really getting to die hard. Yeah, I hope people really stay in the Christmas spirit because that movie's set at that time. So until next week, thanks for coming to the party, pal. you get for being a hero nothing get shot at get a little pat on the back blah 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 a boy get divorced a wife can't remember your last name kids don't want to talk to you you have to eat a lot of meals by yourself trust me kid nobody wants to be that guy then why are you doing this because there's nobody else to do it right now that's why Believe me, if there was somebody else to do it, I would let them do it, but there's not. So we're doing it. That's what makes you that guy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. Congratulations, you're still alive. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can hear more reviews at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. 
Get ready for the downloads. You can hear reviews of Terminator, Predator, The Avengers, Batman, James Bond, Rambo, Rocky, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. Launch the downloads. While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. Baby, come on, baby, come to Papa, I'll kiss your fucking Dalmatian. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. This gentleman, as they say, is where the plot thickens. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You like it, huh? How about you give me 20 bucks for it? But I let you live. Man knows how to bark. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Money. What kind of terrorist are you? <laughs> Who said we were terrorists? You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store where you can buy panties, coffee mugs, t-shirts, totes, boxers, teddy bears, and much more. They're for my wife. Yeah. Bag it. Big time. Now Playing's Die Hard Retrospective Series is edited by Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jeff, and Arnie. I'll be damned if I'm going to clean up this mess! <laughs> now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. You're very impressed with yourself, aren't you? I have my moans. Now Playing is not affiliated with 20th Century Fox. The Detective and Die Hard films are the property of 20th Century Fox and no infringement is intended. Listen, now, you're not pissing in somebody's pool, are you? <laughs> yeah, and I'm fresh out of chlorine. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. That was unpleasant. Don't let it happen again. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production copyright 2013, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Non-compliance will result in a penalty. Happy trails, Hans. Motherfucker. All right. Get the dogs out of the room. I it sounded like I, that was a dog. That was actually my chair. I, don't, okay. I, I have no idea why. <laughs> I was adjusting my chair, and it was like, yeah. I'm like, I wonder if they heard that. It sounded like I killed a dolphin. Yippee <laughs> motherfucker. This is Jit, and I mess up on my own name. It's been a while. Out of practice. God. <laughs> <laughs> it's taken us an hour to hit the record button and we can't even get through our names. Get my name out. Um, all right. Oh. Motherfucker. His marriage is on the rocks due to his wife Karen's addiction to sex with strangers. I don't see why that would be a problem for a marriage, but apparently Joe does. If that joke doesn't play, please cut it. I think but at this point you have to cut it. <laughs> Motherfucker. All right. Okay. Yeah. Yippee Kaye, motherfucker. <laughs>